Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome General Christine Burkle, who is the first woman general in the Utah National Guard. She is an incredibly humble person, an incredibly confident person, but the humility just oozes out of her uh, when uh, you ask her questions. I'm really excited to have her on here. She talks, we're gonna dive into what it was like to be replaced by a computer. So her whole career was stopped because that job was no longer needed because a computer could do it and what that meant for the rest of her life, what actually led to her being a general, but could have led to her leaving the military and didn't. Um, we talk about uh, what it's like to lead and make tough decisions, especially with personnel. Um, it's a really rich, informative conversation. I believe there's a lot of parallels between um, leading in education and leading in the military. And it's just an awesome, uh, yeah, awesome conversation. If you haven't subscribed to us already, please subscribe um, wherever you listen to your uh, podcast, whether it's on Apple or iTunes or uh, iTunes or uh, Spotify. We would love your support. We appreciate your support. And thank you for listening today. Today is your two year anniversary of your retirement. And so I promise you, I will call you Chris, no matter how badly I want to call you General. So General, uh, Chris, thank you for being here with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, as you know, our, our first question is always the same. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Okay. Well, um, I am, and I think it's been stated before on your program, I'm first a wife and a mom, and I'm a stepmom of four. So I'm a mom of one. A daughter who just left for college, a stepmom of four, um, and a grandma of four, and a dog mom. Uh, I'm a veteran, um, and I'm uh, I'm a proud retiree of the uh, Utah Air National Guard and United States Air Force, and that's what retired people do: is we sit out on our back deck and uh, and hang out and you know enjoy life. So. Uh, that is okay. I think you've earned it. And I think, uh, obviously, you telling me to call you Chris shows how humble you are, but there's not many women generals in the armed forces. And so I know that you're in a special, special class, and I just appreciate your commitment. One question I have is, uh, I looked at your background. You went to University of North Carolina, is that correct? In Chapel Hill? I Franklin did. Street? Yes. Go Hills. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty decent school and a lot of fun. Franklin, uh, Franklin Street, Franklin Avenue. Franklin Street, yeah. Oh, I've been there a few times. It's awesome. Um, but you studied math. When you were in college, what, what did you think your career was going to look like? Where, where did you think you were going? Um, well, you know, fortunately for me, when I was in high school, I had a great guidance counselor, and uh, I really did not know um, how I was going to do what I wanted to do. So he helped steer me in that direction. I wanted to fly ever since I was probably 10 years old. Um, but I had no members of my family in the military. So my guidance counselor in high school, Mr. Aleandro, if you're still around, thank you. Um, you know, I was a drum major of the band and I ran track and I did a lot of things. And he said, you know, you have a lot of leadership uh, capability, but also if you want to fly, have you thought about, you know, the military? And I honestly had not thought about the military. Um, so I applied for an Air Force ROTC scholarship and I, I got a four-year scholarship and I, you know, I, I guess I probably was one of those kids ADHD where I, I had a hard time reading. I enjoyed math. I'm the person that like, I like to solve problems and, um, 
So I was more kind of a science oriented kid and that's where I got that from. So, so but you, you had joined to the ROTC. So you knew that you wanted to be in the armed services uh, at a young age, right? Well, it, uh, I did not. I had no, I thought I wanted to be a civilian pilot. And so, um, and when I was like 10, my dad's friend um, took me up. Uh, we went, I lived in Connecticut growing up and we flew out to Block Island in a little plane and I'd never experienced anything like that before. So I had wanted to be an astronaut before that, um, but then, you know, flying kind of just caught my interest and, but I did not think about the military. So that was not something because I'd had very few relatives. I had an uncle who had served in Vietnam, but that's it. Um, so the military piece was really suggested to me by um, my guidance counselor. And when I got the scholarship and thought, well, that's a great way to pay for school and hopefully I'll get to fly in the Air Force. So, <laughs> so uh, I understand, um, I think pr pretty early on, it was deemed that you weren't going to be able to fly. Is that correct? Right. Well, so then um, I had my uh, my pilot scholarship um, after my sophomore year, and then you go and you get your physical. And my eyesight was bad, and my sitting height was the wrong sitting height for a pilot. So I know. Yeah. Wait, how so is it, how is a sitting height a thing? Can't they just adjust uh, the million dollar aircraft? Right? Can't you just adjust the seat so you can? You know, they can do all kinds of things now, but back in the 80s, um, you know, they were pretty strict. I mean, flying, you couldn't have, your vision couldn't be corrected and you, uh, my sitting height, I was too short. So um, they offered me to be a navigator and I said, does that mean I get to fly? And they said, sure. So <laughs> I had no idea what being a navigator was about, but off I went after college to uh, my navigator training in California and sat right behind the pilots and told them where to go for 17 years until, like we talked about previously, I am one of those people replaced by a computer. Yeah, so, well, so uh, I'm, I, I wanna get there in a second. So for me, um, you know, when I think about someone who has uh, the accomplishments that you have in your career, especially at the uh, being a general, I, automatically think of someone who knew that from out of the womb or if they didn't they found out right at the start of their career so going into the armed forces they thought i'm gonna work do everything wake up every day to be a general um it doesn't sound like that was how you landed where, where you are so and i'll tell you if if you know every other general i've ever talked to i think never expected to be a general um i think you just you know, somewhere along your career, um, you know, you have to meet certain, you know, educational uh, points, you know, to become a colonel, you have to go to war college. And um, up to that point, you know, you have to do a lot of other professional military education pieces to move forward. But also, I mean, in the jobs that you have, um, it's just about accepting more responsibility um, with each rank. And so, by the time you know you're a colonel and you've got all of that past history behind you of each job you've had before has been a little more responsibility and a little more responsibility it's not a huge leap to go to that next level of responsibility um of course until you're there and then you're like wow it's pretty lonely yeah. um but uh no i mean they prepare you pretty well especially in the military um you know each rank 
that you meet, um, they always say, I'm promoting you based on your potential, not on your past. So, you know, that's, you know, I never, you never really take for granted, like, oh, I'm, I want to be a general. You just have to work toward the next rank and then work toward the next rank. And so that's, that's how that happens. You mentioned something about being lonely in your different roles at times. And I know that from my experience, principals in school buildings to district officials and their, their offices, yeah. it's often really lonely uh, to be in those positions. And so how, how did you tackle that in your role? So um, I think an important thing is to, um, you know, lean on your peers. And I had at least one other peer in every other state um, that thankfully, especially the states surrounding Utah, um, you know, in the National Guard, um, we all have each other's backs. You know, if there's some type of domestic response or emergency in your state, most likely um, you're, an, a neighboring state's going to be the state that's going to come in and uh, help out. So you become friends with people in your same position, but it's also great because you get a chance to to benchmark off of their ideas. And um, I, you know, I had a lot of great role models um, who were my peers in other states. Um, but also, you know, your boss is is key to that as well and making sure that you have a good relationship with your boss and open communication with your boss because, you know, it is a lonely job and sometimes there are things that, um, you know, you really, you can't discuss with everybody, you know, if you're having to make a difficult decision, you can bounce things off. I will tell you, having a great command chief was also uh, kept me from being lonely. He, um, fantastic uh, airman and so I would say looking to your peers and making sure that you um, don't isolate yourself. I mean, you have to maintain relationships um, across the board. And I'm sure that's true in educators too, nationally, that you know, belonging to professional organizations also helps. So. Yeah, a lot of my friends who are principals or superintendents get so much of their community and development from those associations. So it's interesting to hear that you did the same. Um, when you think about your career, I think there's just some challenges that you've gone through that I feel like are really close to what educators experience. Um, you, you talked about one, I think at one point in your career, you said you were replaced by a computer. Um, what was that like? And what did you think your career was going to be when they told you uh, you're out of this job? So I will tell you, that was a huge pivot point. And when you talk about change, um, that hit me very hard. You know, I joined the military to fly. And so I became a navigator and I flew on the KC-135 refueling plane for 17 years. But that little thing called the GPS, um, which was not installed on our planes until well after it was in use for commercial airlines. So I was still one of those uh, needed pieces of equipment that was helping our pilots um, fly overseas. I mean, I had the sextant and had to shoot the sun. I did celestial navigation and everything. And, you know, I guess I should have figured that was probably eventually going to go away. But um, when they told us that they were, you know, finally installing the global positioning system on our planes um, and they were going to find positions for all of us navigators in alternate career fields, I was lost. I, I didn't want to do anything else. That wasn't what I signed up for. Um, so I was assigned um, to be the head of the personnel flight and I cried 
because I didn't want to do that. Um, they probably cried too when they found out it was me because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's sad, you know, it seems like the, especially units like personnel, you know, they get blamed for everything, you know, if your pay's messed up or your, you know, something in your records is messed up. Um, and so I, um, became the, the commander of our personnel flight and I will say, sadly for me, I didn't adjust well. I, I didn't accept that change very well. Um, I continued to wear my flight suit, which you wear a different uniform when you're a support officer. Um, but I continued to wear my flight suit and uh, I continued to go to lunch with my flying pals and everything. And um, until one day, my chief, which everybody needs a good chief, somebody that's gonna tell you the truth, said, um, you know, if you're gonna be successful at this and you want people to respect you and follow you, um, you need to stop wearing your flight suit to work and you need to start embracing this career field and learning more about it. And um, it was it was a huge blow to me because I'd always been really good at what I'd done, you know, and I'd always uh, thought I would do that forever. And so I took to heart what she said. She was absolutely right. Um, started wearing my, um, the support, you know, the, the, the camo uniform to work. And, um, I started really digging in and finding out what that career field was about. Um, and that opened doors for me that probably led me to the success for the rest of my career and happiness too. Um, because it was a great career field. And after I commanded that flight, I became the state, um, HR officer and learned all about human resources. And in the end, I spent as much time being a personnel officer as I did flying in my early days. But I think I, I think I loved it equally. I loved it just wow. as much. Um, and I don't think I ever would have been promoted to being a general officer had I not been forced to accept that change and actually been kicked in the butt by that command, you know, by that chief who said, you know, I, you know, I know you, you want to do well at this. So learn and adjust and embrace. So. Well, what can you teach us from uh, two angles in that one is uh, what type of spirit I need to have or a person needs to have to receive that kind of feedback. Right. Cause it, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a successful person, <laughs> It's not that you don't want feedback, but you're very determined on the path that you think you have in front of you. So sometimes it's hard to receive that kind of feedback. So before I ask the second one, just tell us what's the key to being able to receive feedback as someone who is an aspiring leader? So an interesting part about the flying career field is um, every time you land from a mission, you do a debrief. And whether you're a fighter pilot or you're a um, you know fighter pilot flying in formation, or you're a KC-135 navigator on a crew of four, you have two pilots and a boom operator, you debrief every mission. And you know what? You have to be, you have to debrief it with honesty and frankness. And it's, so it's, I guess it's something that I got used to early in my career. And then you have your check ride every year. And so at your check ride, um, you know, you're, you're getting frank and honest feedback. So it's funny that I think my, that career field gave me that gift of developing thick skin and understanding that a debrief was just as equally a huge part of being able to accept um, 
you know, critiques or accept other people's way of doing things. Because if you're going to fly a mission um, and you're putting your, your life in the hands of your crew or everything else, you have to be able to accept frank and honest feedback. And, you know, the, in the flying career field, it, the best part about it is it's, it's never personal. So you learn how to give good feedback that's not personal, that's actually, um, you know, that chief that was probably pretty personal when she's like, you know, you should probably shed the pilot, you know, the nav uniform and show up. And but I guess I just went, all right, you know what? Message received. Um, and so I think doing it often as part of what you do and making sure that it's contributing to what the mission is, you know, feedback should always be, um, you know, given for a purpose. And that purpose, you know, that she had was to make me better. She wanted me to succeed. And I think that's a spirit that feedback should always have is you're giving the feedback so the person can succeed so that the next time they have to either perform that duty or that they have to do something that, that they will succeed. And I think that spirit is what's important for people to understand. If somebody gets up enough guts to give you feedback, you should accept it and thank them as it's a gift, you know? So hopefully that's helpful advice. Yeah. I mean, to, to get there, it sounds like one, it's important to have systems of regular feedback, giving and receiving yes. feedback. And then secondly, you didn't speak to it, but I assume you probably had a level of trust with that officer. Um, and so it's usually easier to give and receive feedback in teams where you have higher trust. Do you have any um, uh, examples or ideas of uh, how you built trust with your team so you could have that kind of open feedback? Um, so I think the biggest thing that I think helped me in my career was um, self-reflection and to be able, you know, when people see that you're able to self-reflect um, and also accepting responsibility. I mean, if you screw up, people are so much more um, willing to uh, follow you as a leader if you're willing to admit your mistakes and move forward um, and don't dwell on them. I mean, it, you just, it's, it is a, a huge thing to be able to admit making a mistake. Um, and that builds trust. People will trust you if you can admit that you've made a mistake. Um, and it's funny, I also, you know, I mentioned, you know, as a math major, and I'm not a huge reader, but I do read. Um, but I will say that um, I think it is important to, to acknowledge and understand um, you know, other, you know, you can read in books a lot of things that will help you um, embrace, you know, trusting others and how to trust yourself and how to build trust with people. So anyway, it doesn't, it's, it's not a natural thing. It's really not a natural thing. It's something that you need to either work on or be taught or have um, mentors to help you. So. Well, I, I think to your point, I think transparency is what can really build trust. I mean, there's a lot of components, but transparency is key. And I think oftentimes I find that my friends who are leaders who struggle with that, they struggle because they 
fear that if they admit that they made a mistake, that will have people that will hurt their trust, their, their, their team. And so that's, that's a stumbling block. Is that something that you've noticed? I, I have noticed that. Um, and I will say that I think um, people, you know, we've, we, we had to admit some mistakes in some of the programs we made. Um, my, my command chief and I rolled out a really aggressive um, diversity and inclusion program. And our base, I don't think, was as ready for every aspect that we wanted um, them to embrace. And we, we made some mistakes. And I think we then had to stand in front of people and say, you know, we, um, there are some of the messages that we've sent out that probably weren't, um, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. I, I will just say though that the transparency piece, but being able to just show up and talk about it, yep. um, you know, don't run away, show up and talk about it. So yeah, that's been a theme for a lot of leaders on our podcast is when they face a challenge, the best way to overcome those challenges is like you said, show up, be very honest about what's happening. Don't try to sugarcoat anything and just figure out the next steps together um, as opposed to hiding it. Um, so it's, it's comforting to continue to hear that in your area as well. Um, so sorry, that was a little circuitous of an answer, but you, no, you really, I think that your, your point is exactly what I was trying to say is, um, and it doesn't make you weak as a leader. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a sign of strength is to be able to open yourself up to discussion. Um, however, decision-making is a different, uh, a whole different thing. I mean, building trust is one thing, but decision-making is a whole nother aspect of leadership that, you know, you can't always, um, you can't always open it up for discussion. Sometimes when a decision has to be made, you have to be able to make a decision and, and move forward, so. Yeah, how do you how do you find that balance, right? Because I feel like a lot of the younger leaders, you know, even myself, like one of the the things that I probably still struggle with to this day with my teams is sometimes making certain decisions too democratic that aren't it doesn't actually help the team culture and really there's no place for the vote in a said decision. And so, um, what's your what's your encouragement to folks who are struggling with that type of decision making? You know, there's there's there were a couple of things. I mean, I, I personally think thinking about a decision, if you don't have to make a split second decision, um, being able to think through like the effects of decisions is, is a great thing to do. I mean, if you don't have to make a decision right now, count to 10, take a deep breath um, and, and make sure that the decision you're making um, is, is the right, you know, the right one. A lot of people use decision-making matrices, which I think was really helpful. The um, should I, can I, must I, you know? Must I do this? Well, then the decision's made. Can I do this? All right, that opens a few doors. The should I do this is the hardest part um, that you have to kind of work through consequences of those decisions. And a lot of people and a lot of leaders um, still use decision-making matrices to kind of help make sure that they're not missing um, some aspect of that decision they have to make. So that's helpful. I think, uh, one of the quotes that I read about you, someone said, uh, basically you've been lauded as a person with exceptional principle, right? That you've, you've really led with exceptional principle and you make your decisions with exceptional principles. What, 
what do you think? If you look at your life and your leadership, what are the, what principles do you hold dear uh, to that are key to your leadership? So, um, one of the best things I got to do when I was in HR um, was to interview people for jobs, and I got to hear from people what was important to them and why they wanted certain jobs. But one of the best things I heard um, when I was hiring a commander, and this was I flew across the country to do an interview. There were you always had to have a, a female of equal rank on certain boards. And so states would call other people and be like, do you have a colonel, you know? So I'd love to do that. I'd love to fly over to other states, sit on interview boards. And this one woman um, told me that her leadership philosophy was firm, fair, friendly. And it was a long time ago. And from that point forward, I embraced that as my, because it's how I felt. I just couldn't express it so succinctly. And I think um, those are the three things that I hold dear. I mean, you know, people don't want to see you being super wishy-washy. When you're a leader, they want to know that you, you know, have the fortitude and the strength um, to lead. Um, and, you know, the fair part, I think, is another huge thing is accountability and, and fairness. Um, but the friendly part, I think, is the hugest thing. You know, you don't have to be a jerk nope. to be a good leader. And, you, you know, the firm, fair, friendly was something when I was having a tough day um, or I was, you know, getting, getting, um, you know, too, too uh, emotionally involved in, in something, you know, I would just say to myself, you know, is it, you know, is it fair? You know, are you presenting this um, in the right light? So those are my principles. That's great. So when you think about your career, um, what was either one or a couple of the toughest leadership decisions you think you had to make where hmm. you need to be firm uh, in your leadership style? Firm, fair, and maybe even friendly in your decisions. Um, wow. That's a, that's a really tough one because I, a couple that pop to mind are, um, you know, really, really tough to discuss um, because when, you, when you're in the guard and you're, you're in an organization for 20 plus years um, and you get to kind of be the decider of who gets to stay and who gets to go because you have to force manage. Yep. you know, and sometimes you have to ask people to retire. Mm. And I've asked a few people to retire because it was their time. Um, and it was the right time for them to retire. And it was very hard for them to accept. Um, but I, you know, I knew it was the right thing for the organization. And eventually, that those people would go on to do something else in their lives that was meaningful and successful, but that, you know, your military service isn't forever. Right. Um, so that was a hard thing, especially um, as a general officer was having to look back. I mean, I grew up with all of the other officers. And then when I got promoted to general, um, you know, and I was their boss, that was really hard at some points to say, it's time for you to go. It's time to retire. So how did, how did you know when it was your time? I actually set that pretty much, um, the day I, um, took the rank of general officer with my family. Wow. Um, I promised them that if I took the job, I would do it for three years 
so that I could hold the rank in retirement. And I did. Um, so that I, it was a personal decision that I made when I took the rank with my family. And actually it really helped me throughout that three years, um, kind of know that, you know, at the end of this three-year tour, uh, I'm going to retire. My daughter was going to, my daughter was a junior in high school when I retired and my husband was in his final few years of his airline pilot job. And, um, so we discussed it as a family. Wow. I, you know, one of the things that we hear often is uh, succession planning, whether it's a younger principal who's leaving a school and moving on to another school or a district job. That, yeah. That's one of the trickier things in leadership. And I believe I it read is. an article about you had started as you were leaving, you would help put together like a 10 year plan or something. What advice do you have for people as they're thinking through their own succession plans? Ooh, well, I think the advice is that um, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it's it, a nice part about the National Guard, I have to say, is that you do um, get to know people in your career. Um, you know their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, you probably know them as well as you know your own family. Um, so it's always good to have more than one choice. Um, that's a huge thing. I mean, don't ever set it up that only one person can fill one role. Um, make sure that you've given fair opportunity for people to, um, to fail early so that you can kind of see how they handle that. Um, and, but not, you know, not fail to a point where the mission is affected. So, you know, when you're a young officer and you're looking around, um, I think you realize that, you know, as you move up in rank, um, more and more people will not move up in rank with you. Not everybody gets promoted to the next rank. So you just have to look early and often um, at people that have stepped up. So um, as you look back at your career, you know, one of the things that we see, another thing we see as um, students who are especially high school age, looking at what, what are their options for their life? How would you recommend the armed services, armed forces path for uh, students thinking about, should I go to college? Should I go work a job or should I join the armed forces? I think a thing that is a misperception of a lot of young people is that, um, that there isn't a place for them in the military in some type of career field they want to do. Um, they, when people think of the Air Force, they think everybody flies. Um, right. And I'm here to tell you that uh, with as many career fields as there are in the world, there, there, there's a vast number of career fields. I mean, we have civil engineers, we have um, public affairs officers um, who are journalists, basically. Um, we have folks that, uh, like I said, HR professionals and finance professionals. So there's something for everyone in the military, but the best part about it is the training that you get um, in the military, I believe is second to none in the world um, because we take training so seriously. I mean, we train to fight wars um, and yes, I mean, finance officers are just as important in a war as a fighter pilot. And we take career field um, development very, very seriously. So if you're looking, you know, my, my advice to young people is, um, you know, don't stovepipe yourself into thinking that 
you know, you're going to do this. And just like I did, you know, I'm going to fly. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, sometimes you get asked to do other things. Um, so that's an exciting thing about the military. I think a lot of folks don't understand and it's merit-based. That's another thing too. Um, you know, I, it's one of the few career fields where women and men get paid the exact same to do the same job. Um, we all wear the same uniform and it's, you know, merit-based and skill-based. And um, so to me, I think that that's a great place for a young person to start their lives. Um, and I just spoke with a young uh, woman who was on my daughter's soccer team the other day, and she just joined Army ROTC and has no one in her family and doesn't understand some of the terms. And I'm like, well, you know what? It's an adventure and it's exciting and you can't go wrong in my book, especially in, in today's day and age. Um, we have, you know, cyber career fields and space and so many exciting new things opening up that there's something for everyone. So that's awesome. I mean, we have firefighters, we have firefighters, we have, I mean, it's amazing. So you can do anything you want to do in the military. That's great. Well, before we go, as you, you know, we have a few questions that we're asking everybody this season <laughs> about the leadership. So one of those is what habits you think daily habits, weekly habits, whatever habits you have that you think contributed to your success as a leader? Well, um, the pandemic has changed a lot of our habits, but one habit that I think um, in the military that uh, has stayed with me that is important to my future health and success is to take care of yourself physically and mentally. Um, we had four pillars, but you know, I still work out um, at least 20 to 30 minutes a day, even if it's just to take a brisk walk. Um, take care of yourself physically, um, but also mentally. I think it's important that we, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's enough stress out there in the world um, that you need to be able to clear your mind of it and you need to be able to uh, laugh a little and do something fun and, you know, take care of yourself mentally or spiritually. Um, take some time for that. So I'm, I, I just joined a bowling league and I don't know the first thing about bowling, but I decided to do something to, to put myself out there and be able to go do something fun that, you know, I don't have to think about all the world's problems. I just have to think about rolling that ball down the, you know, alley and hitting a few pins. So take bowling, care of yourself. Bowling and golf. I think I'm going to come hang out with you. I like this. Uh, uh, so I know you said earlier that uh, reading is not your main focus. So yeah. podcast could be anything. What What is it that um, you're listening to, reading, watching that's really making an impact on you right now? Well, funny you say that. Um, first of all, the last, I'd say, seven months, our house has been torn up um, because we're renovating. So I have spent a lot of time um, looking at house renovation uh, and watching HGTV, which is yes. really fun. Uh, not something I never really had time for, but um, we're almost at the end. It's probably why I'm sitting outside because most days there's a lot going on in our house, but um, I kind of picked up a lot of, um, you know, house ideas, which has been a, a great fun thing to do. Um, and I, I did start reading a, a neat book. I like stories about 
people, real people, real things. I'm not a big I, fantasy reader or anything like that. And two years ago, my boss came to my retirement and gave me this book, Fly Girls. And I'll tell you, I started a few days ago. I haven't been able to put it down. It's really neat to read some of the his historic perspectives of, you know, some really neat women who paved the way for my career field in aviation. Um, but uh, listening to is funny because before my daughter left for college, um, we spent a lot of time, the three of us, my husband and I and her um, sitting out on our back patio on nice evenings playing cards and listening to her playlist. And her playlist was basically the same playlist that I had in high school, Eagles, Grateful Dead, um, Journey. And it's just funny to think that she thought that was her playlist. And we're like, yeah, yeah. Dad and I know all those songs. So um, she was listening because that sounds like a great playlist to me. Yeah, it's, you know, just anything kind of hate to say it, but I'm I'm still back in the, uh, you know, I don't know. I kind of was a hippie chick growing up. So take that for what it's worth. I called my wife a flower child. She was definitely born was... for a long decade. So I get it. Yeah. So don't ever think just because you're, you know, maybe kind of a, a flower child that you won't make it in the military because yeah. it's all kinds. <laughs> That's amazing. So uh, last question. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, especially in education. Is. So is the, are we going to, uh, the pandemic going to take us out of in-person school again we gonna, you know just just a lot of uncertainty what's your what's your best advice for people leading in that kind of uncertain environment well my sister is a second grade teacher in jacksonville florida and she um i'll tell you she's one of the hardest working people i know and i think the important thing is to um no matter what you're doing if it's at you know in school in-person school or if it's um you know, online school is to still stay as connected as possible individually, um, you know, with your kids, because I, I watched my daughter um, do online school for her senior year, and it was pretty sad. I kind of watched her tune out a little and turn off who she was. And there's a part of me that maybe wishes that her teachers would have maybe been a little more accountable with making sure that every person in the class was speaking and that every person in the class was uh, turning their camera on to be seen. Um, you know, I walk into her, you know, room where she's going to school and it seemed like there was always the same one or two people kind of taking the, up the conversation. And my daughter was all too happy to allow that to happen because, you know, she could then just zone out. But I think it's, I think you have to make sure that your quietest kid is, um, you know, participating as much as, you know, your most talkative kids. So I don't know. I, I mean, I've never been a teacher, but I have so much respect for our educators and everything they're trying to do right now. And especially with the online school, um, you know, whatever you can do to look right into that, kids eyes and make sure that they're you know they're there is important communicating wow. you've been you've been described by a number of folks as a servant leader and so i think to be a servant leader means you have to humble yourself and know people and seek to know them and so it just seems that 
fall right in line. You know, the advice you just gave about connecting with students, getting to know them falls right in line with how you led throughout your career. So I think it's pretty sound advice. So I appreciate it very much. Um, Chris, this yeah. awesome. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say before I let you go, but this has been a great, great conversation. Oh, well, I want to say thank you. Um, it's, it's really been fun to um, watch your podcast. And um, I just want to thank the educators out there because I will say that um, you're the heroes. I know we in the military, a lot of times we get called heroes and that's true. I mean, I, I'm very thankful for the, for the men and women I served with. They're my heroes, but my sister, my second grade teacher sister is equally a hero in my heart. Um, and she's raising that next generation of folks that are going to be the ones um, leading. So Awesome. I appreciate that. I appreciate the time. Yeah, appreciate you. Uh, thank you for uh, your service, but also thank you for uh, giving back today and giving time to us. I really appreciate it. And hope we get a chance to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Dustin. Yeah, sounds good. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.